This is the After Ed Podcast with Jason Vest, a show that highlights individuals around the world challenging the status quo in education. Tune in. All right. Uh, welcome, everyone, to another edition of the After Ed Podcast. Uh, you guys really are in for a treat today. Today with me, I have Tom Vander Ark. Tom, thanks for being on the show. Hey, great to be with you. So, Tom, uh, just hitting some of the high points here. You are um, CEO of Getting Smart, author, writer, speaker. Uh, you were the first executive director of education for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and a former superintendent, um, but I know you do all kinds of other things as well. Is there anything that um, is worth mentioning that, that I didn't cover there? Well, for the last 10 years, we've really just tried to help educators figure out what to do next. Uh, we, we really focus on innovations and in learning, particularly in K-12 education, and we're, we're just excited about the time in which we, uh, we teach and write. I think it's uh, kind of a modern renaissance of learning. I love that you said that, and uh, I couldn't agree more, and I'm happy to be on this side of things for sure. So I know recently that you have uh, publicly praised Virginia for their creation of a profile of a Virginia graduate, and in my district in Henrico, we've tried to take that a step further and create our own learner profile, uh, and we have this progression rubric. Um, and so while you know this is a great North Star, um, just from your experience, how might students and teachers and other leaders actually use this or best utilize this? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that uh, you were working on a graduate profile. Um, you know, we're in the middle of a couple of sort of mega shifts in education from print to digital and from sort of narrow basic outcomes of reading, writing, and math to these broader outcomes that more and more people are recognizing that it takes to be takes more to be successful in careers and and citizenships and the Virginia graduate profile is a is a great example of a community conversations that yielded a great a set of success criteria that include knowledge but really focus on skills and and include interpersonal skills the sort of habits of mind that we know are successful so it's a it's a great place to start because when when you have that community uh, agreement then you can have the conversation about what kind of learning experiences do young people need to actually build these and what we find is that we've inherited schools that value routine and compliance you know show up do what you're told march from class to class fill out a worksheet and these bite-size assignments and bite-size courses um, can be useful for building routine knowledge, uh, but they're not very good at, at building the muscle that we need for dealing with novelty and complexity. That takes um, extended challenges, big, complicated, integrated projects sustained over weeks and even, even months. So when you have a, a great graduate profile, it lays the groundwork for reimagining uh, the school experience. And uh, we're, we're excited to see thousands of schools around America that are uh, well into that experimentation. 
So you recently published an article that was titled, What Game Are You Playing? Improvement or Innovation? Uh, could you explain the difference between the two and for those that didn't get to read the article and weigh in on whether uh, or not both have value? Yeah, I, I posted uh, an article called What Game Are You Playing? Improvement or Innovation on uh, GettingSmart.com a week ago. It came from a, a great conversation that I had with a group of educators from Kansas City. We were visiting Arizona State University, and, and one of the educators from Kansas City said, you've got to decide if you're playing uh, the improvement game or the innovation game. And improvement's just getting better at the old game, hoping for incremental improvement. Innovation is trying something new, hoping for dramatically uh, different results. Improvement relies on execution. You know, it's proven practices, consistently executed classroom to classroom. It can be pursued with, with an internal agreement, and, and it doesn't involve much risk or much investment. You know, a group of teachers can decide on an improvement um, st strategy, and there's little risk that results are going to get worse as a result of, you know, of that agreement. Innovation, on the other hand, means let's try something different. And that almost always involves risk, and it sometimes involves investment. And as a result, it often takes a broader agreement. Like you have to tell parents, we're going to try this. We're not sure if it's going to work, but we think it's a cool idea and it might lead to significantly better results or a new set of results that we've never really aimed for let's say social emotional learning, for example. So I, I, I paint these as uh, a stark differences, but almost every school is embarking on a mixture of improvement and innovation. My point in the article is just get clear that uh, about the balance between the two that's right for you. And I, I think it's the task of every school head and every system head to try to get that balance right of improvement versus innovation and what what the right mixture is depending on the students they serve the needs they bring to school the capacity and budget they have and the stakeholders in in their community so tom i know you're a huge fan and uh, familiar with clayton christensen's work you know sustainable versus disruptive innovation can you truly innovate in k-12 schools if you don't have uh, that disruptive space well, I, I think what's true, Jason, is that we've got a lot more space than we think we do. Um, one of the big unintended consequences of No Child Left Behind is that it put people in a box, of, and, and a box that they thought was much smaller than, than it actually was. It, it's interesting for me, because 20 years ago, I was making grants to both the, all the most progressive schools in America, big picture learning and high tech high and new tech high um, and expeditionary learning on one hand and on the other and I was making grants to build what became No Child Left Behind and I thought that measurement and and progressive pedagogy could live side by side and I was I was sadly mistaken. Um, but at least some of that is because uh, we we've led ourselves to believe that if there's measurement that we just have to focus on drill and kill uh, sort of uh, curriculum. So I think most schools have more room to innovate than they uh, than they believe they do. And I think with um, with ESSA, the, the uh, now uh, year and a half old federal 
uh, policy that almost in every state, you've just got a lot more room to innovate and a lot, lot more interest in, uh, in broader outcomes. And that's certainly true in Virginia. I just spent uh, a bunch of time in Albemarle County uh, with a, a terrific school district there that uh, they clearly are, are thoughtful and pay attention to the basics and reading and writing, uh, but are really innovating to try to help every student hit their uh, their graduate profile uh, in the same way that Henrico is. So I, I do think innovation takes room, it takes permission, it takes investment. Um, and I, I think the role of leaders is to create that space by having community conversations and building agreements around uh, new initiatives. But I think most of us have more room to innovate than we think. That's uh, not, I don't think advice, but I'm going to take that. That's actually good advice for, um, for people, I think. Well, the, I guess the point, Jason, is uh, leaders do have to build agreements. If you try to innovate without agreements, you'll get fired. Right. Uh, because you've taken risk without... Uh, without a set of agreements underneath it. You didn't have the investment, you didn't have the support. And I've, I've made a lot of dumb decisions in my career as an educator where I tried to innovate without community agreement. I, for example, uh, 20 years ago, tried to build a network of small community connected high schools rather than building a big comprehensive high school in my town. And I put it out to a bond and I thought I knew better and I got my, uh, got my butt kicked. <laughs> I, I lost badly because I had become arrogant. I thought I knew better than the community did. And, and the point is you got to give people what they want or you got to lead them to a new place. And, you know, leading them to a new place takes community conversations and new agreements. And that's the new work of education leaders of being community conversation facilitators and crafters of temporary agreements. I love that and uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, I am uh, clearly in favor of, of innovation and definitely see the value in, in both um, disrupting the status quo and, and you know, sticking with what, what does work. Um, but like you've, you've made clear, there is an opportunity cost. And in the short term, you know, a small group benefits from the innovation. And this could be one reason why we, you know, we don't scale as quickly as we'd like. But uh, so you mentioned in, in a recent article that fostering innovation and fighting for equity may be the challenge of our time. So if that's the case, where do you start? And we'll use my district as an example. We have 72 schools. Um, so in a district that size, you have many diversity metrics to look at. So if we were to roll out uh, a micro school and it's successful with equity in mind, how does something like that scale? Yeah, great question. Um, it's, it's critical that leaders, um, are, are building an innovation agenda. That's both, you could think of it as uh, bottom up and top down. Uh, you can't rely on, on either, uh, either one exclusively. Uh, if you just try to seed sort of organic bottom-up, you know, teacher-led innovations, uh, you know, you'll get a thousand flowers to bloom, but it it won't add up to coherent school models, and it won't add up as a community to a portfolio of high-quality options for every family in the community. So, um, seeding innovation, and if you hold 
in in both hands, innovation and and equity. Um, that means it takes real leadership. Um, the way that many uh, system heads are describing it is that they build a framework and then invite schools to grow into that framework. So that the system framework could be, as we described, a, a graduate profile, that what kids should know and be able to do, and a set of agreements around that. Uh, the system framework could include uh, some technology capabilities uh, for access to technology and access to broadband and plans for modern facilities. And then those can be provisioned either on a timeline or as schools become uh, ready. And I'm in favor of allowing schools to move at their, at their own speed as they uh, determine their own readiness. But I'm, I'm also in favor of identifying teacher leaders and trying to allow them to move as quickly as possible. So micro schools are a great example of enabling small teacher teams to move really quickly. But as you, as you said, in a big school district, let's say you've got a dozen micro schools that are, are flourishing. How does that go to scale? Well, my sense is that in a, in a big system, uh, that you should rely on on multiple networks of schools. Sometimes those networks are vertical networks, uh, like a feeder pattern that all decides to focus on STEM. Sometimes those are like-minded schools, like a group of project-based schools. We, we, for example, we just visited um, the progressive schools of Philadelphia that are all part of the innovation network there. Great PBL schools inside a public district that all share some autonomy and share some common practices. So a, a big system can rely on smaller networks that scale up around either themes or practices or, uh, or tool sets. So I think uh, seeding innovation and then encouraging schools to work in networks is key. And then the, the final point that I'll make is you do have to put innovation on a timeline uh, a, a system head has to be able to make a reliable promise to the community that every student is going to be in a, a personalized learning environment, let's say, by uh, three years from now. And so you can allow teachers and schools to move at their own rate, some faster and some slower. I call that fast lane, slow lane change management. But you do have to put the, the vision on a timeline and be able to promise everybody in the community uh, that every child will have uh, access to a, a modern school facility, access to good technology, and access to a, a personalized learning program over a, a stated time frame. I think those things are critical uh, for your commitment to equity. So none of this is easy, holding, holding in trust uh, your community and, and embracing the paradox of innovation and equity is it's a, a constant battle, but that's uh, that's why superintendents get the big bucks to uh, to hold those uh, you know those ideas in in trust on behalf of the community. Well said. So switching gears a little, everyone talks about the future and getting students prepared, uh, but you know this this current future, so to speak, uh, seems a little bit different. So some say that automation will be so widespread that there won't be any jobs left for humans. Uh, I'm guessing that you don't buy that. Uh, so while nothing is entirely certain, 
What can you tell us about the future of work? Yeah, I, I've spent the last three years studying uh, the future of work and what it means for schools. And uh, I feel very paradoxical about it. On, on one hand, uh, there's never been a more exciting time to be a young person. There's never been a better time uh, f- uh, to be in high school. Uh, high school students today uh, can change the world. The ability to code an app, to launch a campaign, to start a business has never been better uh, in, in any country on earth. And uh, I, I would love to see schools be alive with that sense of possibility. I'd love to see young people introduced to the you know, the great challenges and opportunities of our, of our day and then equipped to, uh, to, to make a difference. So it's an exciting time. And then the flip side of that is uh, it's really a terrifying time. There's uh, all, all sorts of new existential threats change is happening uh, much more quickly than it ever has. And, and as you, you mentioned, uh, Jason, the, um, the jobs agenda is scary. Every job, um, almost every job is, is going to be augmented and then many of them will be automated. Um, what makes it difficult to predict is that it's going to be different uh, by geography and different by job cluster. Uh, in America where um, labor is relatively expensive and technology is relatively good. I think we'll see job displacement happening pretty rapidly in, in the next 10 years. Um, in Southeast Asia, where labor is less expensive and there's less access to capital, um, the job displacement will be a bit slower. So it's going to be different by cluster and by uh, geography. The, the flip side of this is that uh, we're going to see uh, more entrepreneurship than we've ever seen. I, I mean, just think about uh, rideshare apps and um, and things like Airbnb. The, we, we've created apps that now um, monetize underutilized assets like our spare bedrooms and a, and a car. And we have young people now curating experiences and becoming Airbnb experience curators. We, we didn't even, couldn't have imagined that as a, our career choice even three years ago. Uh, th- there is debate as to uh, how quickly those entrepreneurial opportunities will emerge and whether they will be um, at the same rate as job displacement. I think the answer is going to be, uh, it's going to vary widely um, by region. The regions that skill up and stress entrepreneurship and support it with community investments are going to win in this new economy. Uh, so I think it's up to us. Um, the, the, the last thing that I'll add is that sharing is going to be more important than ever. Uh, it's something that we learn how to do in preschool, uh, but it's, it, this is a place where I think schools can lead community conversations about the importance of sharing. One thing we can say for sure is that artificial intelligence is accelerating uh, the aggregation of benefits and wealth. And uh, we're going to see more and more income inequality in the United States and around the world. And so how communities and states and countries decide to share the benefits of the automation economy and the wealth that it's creating 
uh, could be the most important uh, issue of the, the next 20 years. All right. So after after that grim paradox, uh, well, it's, it's not all bad news. No, it's it's, it's uh, not. It's also you know I, we have a shot at uh, at uh, curing disease, at uh, at addressing climate change. At a uh, we have the opportunity to automate some pretty crummy jobs out of existence and and create some some cool new ones. But, but it is going to come down to how we decide to share those benefits and, you know, who has access to great learning opportunities. So we have work to do. Yeah, and, you know, um, I'm just curious. You mentioned something about, you know, entrepreneurship, and, and I'm a big believer in that kind of education for students, even at the middle school level where I am. Um, but but my piece is always that uh, you know I think entrepreneurship is important not to teach you to write a business plan and start a business, but to give you the mindset of an entrepreneur. So, uh, what's your take on that statement? Yeah, I I think it's two things. It's the it's the entrepreneurial um, mindset, and it's sort of a a commitment to contribution, right? Versus extraction. It's it's about contributing back to society, not extracting from society and it's about uh, learning to spot opportunity and to take initiative and to deliver value to a group of uh, customers or stakeholders so those are the the values that i think we should be teaching and entrepreneurship doesn't mean go start a business it means uh, delivering value to your community and you can do that from a nonprofit or from a government agency or from inside a big company or it could be a startup. And in, in all of those cases, we are all entrepreneurs today. Um, most of us are gonna move back and forth from getting a job to making a job, from working for somebody to working for ourselves. Uh, so we're, we're all designers, we're all entrepreneurs, and we all need to learn to, to collaborate and deliver value on diverse teams. I think that's a good segue. Um, I want to talk for a minute about college. Uh, and I have students that are working towards um, what we call the, you know, advanced degree. Uh, so that typically means, you know, another language, another uh, English, couple electives. Uh, and, you know, they consider, as do their parents, that uh, that gives them a leg up on the competition for being accepted into college. So uh, I'm just interested in your take uh, with conversations um, with higher ed individuals around the country, around the world even. Um, do advanced degrees really give students a leg up? And, um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing they don't. And if not, uh, what does set students apart today to try to get into college? Yeah, this is, uh, there's a book length answer to to a great question um, obviously your transcript matters. I think increasingly your portfolio matters, meaning the, the actual work that you do at school and at the, uh, in, in your community. And so I, I would encourage young people not only to be building a, 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 um, transcript of advanced courses, uh, building a portfolio uh, that shows a, a commitment to delivering high quality work to uh, to public audiences. 
Um, there's definitely a diminishing returns when it comes to accumulating advanced courses like uh, IB and, and AP. In fact, one of the schools that we work with, Singapore American School, um, was the, the leading uh, AP school in the world where students were leaving with 12 or 15 AP courses and literally killing themselves uh, to accumulate these uh, transcripts. And it it turns out that after a couple advanced courses, there's dramatically uh, diminishing returns. You know, you've demonstrated that you can you can uh, survive an AP course, but accumulating more and more uh, doesn't show much. Colleges today are most, uh, uh, particularly the selectives, looking for interesting human beings that have expressed themselves um, and their curiosity and their initiative and their uh, their contribution in uh, in a variety of ways and in, in well-rounded ways and so i would focus uh, rather than accumulating more advanced courses i would accumulate uh, more um, artifacts of your of your contribution i'd also uh, point you to seth godin's new podcast akimbo uh, last week he had a great uh, podcast on on hacking college and I appreciated his advice where he said, uh, don't focus so much on, on being selected. Don't wait for a college to pick you, pick the college or pick the pathway that you're most interested in, become an expert in a field, and then reach out to a faculty member at a college that you'd like to attend and, and start actually engaging them on an intellectual level uh, around uh, ideas that that professor is interested in and then leverage that relationship in the admissions process. So I like that advice of being uh, proactive about identifying your own interests, going deep in those interests, building relationships around those interests. And, and I, I think Seth's advice on don't wait to get picked um, is good advice, not only when it comes to college or in writing or in job search, uh, I, I think it's a good advice in life. Pick yourself, do the work, find people that uh, agree with uh, the areas that you want to make a contribution in. I love that advice um, from Seth. And, uh, you know, this, this is obviously your interview, but for anyone out there who's not familiar with Seth Godin's work, uh, I strongly encourage you to check some of that out. Even if you are an educator, I mean, some of the stuff, you know, he's not a formal teacher, but um, some of uh, his work, um, uh, he just, he's, he's so articulate and um, really gets his message across clearly and it benefits everyone. And uh, I truly do love that advice. Don't wait to be selected. You know, Jason, I'd uh, circle back to the graduate profile. The Seth's podcast the week before was on what school for. Mm. And and uh, that that's where we started our conversation on having a, a fresh community conversation about what is school for? What are we doing? What are we really trying to accomplish here? How do we really help kids uh, be successful in life as uh, as citizens? And We've just found reliably in well-resourced and poorly resourced communities in this country and others, if you have that honest conversation with people, you will build support for doing interesting and, and innovative work. 
All right, uh, Tom. So one of the things that I've found in in having those conversations with community members, um, whether it's students or district leaders or parents, um, you know, policymakers, is that information overload is just this hugely pervasive in our world today. So I'm I truly believe that parents uh, specifically don't really know where to look or who to get information from. So where can parents look to find out what's really happening in education um, these days at the secondary and higher ed levels to truly um, make uh, an informed decision for their kids, their family? Yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great point. It's it's more important than ever to be a parent. Um, as learning shifts from you know age cohorts, where, where when my kids were little thirty years ago, you pick a school, and if you picked a good neighborhood, you'd get a good school, and that good school would be an escalator to the American dream. And uh, and today. Uh, parents and learners are making hundreds of choices every day. So it's not just the once a decade decision about where to live. It's the uh, what do we do next? And uh, young people are making decisions all day long. Uh, when they come home, they're making decisions about what to do on their screen, whether it's to, to play a game or social media or a learning activity. So parents and kids are just facing an order of magnitude, more decisions every day. And, and as a result, it's never been more important to be a parent. So the, the, first, the first rule is uh, know what your, uh, your young person's doing online, help them make good choices, help them make good decisions about how much time to be online. Uh, we think that the guidance gap is the is the new divide it's uh, more important than the achievement gap it's uh, young people that have an adult that cares about them that's walking alongside them that's helping them make good decisions about what to do next so um, get involved stay involved be nosy about uh, the apps that your son or daughter are, are using be um be rather strict about how much uh, screen time they have access to. And uh, if you, you want a great tip, uh, build a family technology pact. This is an agreement about how everybody in the family, uh, parents and children alike, will use technology. We have a great blog on our site from a month ago, Rachel Wigglesworth is, uh, is a friend of ours that described the pact that her family wrote about when and how everybody in the house will use technology and about how their their commitment to eating together and uh, that they're going to have screens up time and screen down time uh, I, I think that's a just terrific advice uh, that that uh, all of us can learn from as as parents and grandparents Great advice. Uh, Tom, one final question. Uh, where can people find you and your work? Gettingsmart.com is where I, I post uh, more days than not. And you can find me on Twitter at T. Vanderark. Uh, would love to engage with folks uh, in either place. All right. 
Tom Vandrock, thank you again for being on the show today. Thanks for your work. We appreciate it. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, Jason Vest here. Look, uh, we need you to subscribe to the podcast for one reason and one reason only. Uh, And that is the same reason that you choose to listen to a podcast or not. You go to it. If it seems like it's something you're interested in, the first thing you do is you look and see what the ratings are. You look and see how many people have left positive reviews. So please, if this was of any value to you, return the favor. Thank you. Have a great day.